Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today I'm joined by Vijaya Ramachandran, an economist whose research focuses on economic growth, private sector development, food security, and energy infrastructure, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. Vijaya is the Director for Energy and Development at the Breakthrough Institute and holds a PhD in Business Economics from Harvard University. Vijaya, Dr. Ramachandran, <laughs> I'm getting maybe overly familiar with you already, uh, but welcome to Decouple. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Chris, and please feel free to call me Vijaya. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Vijaya, I brought you on because I read a very interesting piece of yours in foreign policy that was called Rich Countries, Climate Policies Are Colonialism in Green. Um, and this is a topic that we've been looking at a little bit on Decouple, but certainly very interested in exploring a little bit more um, the dynamics uh, between the global north and global south and that tension between climate action and differential responsibility, etc. One of my favorite one sentence quotes, um, I think it's Samir Saran um, who said, you know, your your climate solutions cannot be our poverty, something to that effect. Um, so very uh, excited and honored to have you on the podcast to explore that theme. But first, um, if you can do the famous decouple self-introduction um, and just very briefly give us a little bit about yourself, help our listeners get a bit more of a kind of personal understanding of you and, and your motivations and why you do what you do. Thanks so much, Chris. So I am the Director for Energy and Development at the Breakthrough Institute in Berkeley, California. And I'm looking at energy access and trying to solve energy poverty in poor countries and what sorts of um, policies that Western countries and donors might pursue to help poor countries address energy poverty. Uh, prior to um, Joining the Breakthrough Institute, I was at the Center for Global Development for 15 years in Washington, D.C., um, where I was looking at private sector development largely, trying to understand the constraints that um, small businesses faced in sub-Saharan Africa. And one of the things that kept cropping up um, in my field work was um, energy and access to energy. And, and businesses really suffer in Africa because they don't have access to reliable and cheap energy. Um, and I noticed that that was a constraint for households as well, for, um, uh, you know, for, for uh, modernizing agriculture, all sorts of um, things that really, really need uh, a good and reliable and continuous source of energy. Um, prior to my work at CGD, I worked at the World Bank for some years. Um, I also worked in the UN in the office of the Secretary General um, and have spent some time teaching uh, at Duke University. Wow. You know, it was it was interesting. I just got back from uh, COP26 where the Decouple Media team was out in full force. Um, we had some very interesting interactions that I think are um, quite topical given what we're discussing today. Um, one of those was um, a Decouple Studios piece, um, which Jesse Freeston, our videographer, uh, put together. And, and he followed around um, Princess Mthambini, who's uh, someone who works at the Department of Energy in South Africa, um, you know, and, and a nuclear advocate, as well as uh, Shirley Rodriguez, a, a Peruvian uh, American. Um, and they sort of did a tour of the African pavilions at COP. And I mean, it was very interesting for those who, who weren't there or didn't follow our coverage. You know, you have a little bit of a, of a kind of an expo. Uh, many countries in the world have pavilions. Many don't as well. But Africa was quite prominently featured, I think, probably because this is a big opportunity to seek, you know, uh, relationships with NGOs and, and donor countries. 
Um, but that, that was a big thing. You know, some of the themes of, of their sort of tour walking around, they were lapel mic'd talking with the various representatives was, you know, this, I think they, they can be a little bit um, shocking to Westerners that are a little out of touch with, um, with third world energy policy, just that, you know, there's a real need to industrialize. Industrialization is not a dirty word in the way that it is in Western climate circles. Um, you know, another thing that really came up, they had a very interesting conversation with um, someone from a forestry uh, pavilion from from the from the global south, I think Africa specific. And um, those folks were saying, you know, what do we need to preserve African forests? We need energy, you know, and, and what kind of energy? Well, it doesn't really matter as long as it's not charcoal. Um, so that's just some some really, really interesting discussions. Um so I, I guess with that as a kind of framing, can you kind of walk us through your foreign policy piece and, and what it was about? I, I understand it was sort of Norway's efforts to constrain fossil fuel developments overseas. So, so maybe just give us a little bit of an overview there. Yeah, I'll start with the points you raised, Chris, which is that these are largely countries that are yet to industrialize. You know, so we're looking at 39 countries in sub-Saharan Africa that are classified as, you know, amongst the poorest countries in the world. Um, and for industrialization to happen, energy is critical. Uh, I think that's the big difference between where um, poor countries are coming from and where rich countries are coming from in um, the battle to address climate change. For rich countries, industrialization has largely occurred and decoupling away from fossil fuels has begun. It's well underway. I think for African countries, particularly the poorest countries in sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, they are needing energy, for example, to produce fertilizer. I mean, yields in um, sub-Saharan Africa are a tenth of what they are in um, middle-income countries in Asia. And so to wow. grow more food, you know, you absolutely have to have fertilizer as an input. And for fertilizer to be produced, natural gas is critical. It's probably the most efficient way to produce fertilizer, and it's the way fertilizer is produced around the world. So that's one, you know, really key um, input that African countries need right now in order to lift millions of people out of poverty and, and to move people into sort of the modern economy. But there are other uses as well. You know, businesses that exist need a, a continuous supply of electricity. Um, you need uh, energy for building roads and for building um, infrastructure, which again, in the large, richer countries has already been built. So I think these are the tensions that are coming to the front when we discuss, you know, what to do about climate change. There are sort of very critical energy needs in Africa that we can't ignore, we can't simply tell them to shut down fossil fuels now because we like that idea and, you know, we think that's going to address climate change. And I think that's where I started from in my piece in foreign policy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've discussed this idea before of, of differential responsibility for climate change. And I think that's part of what really scuttled the negotiations at, uh, at the Copenhagen COP several years ago. Uh, China saying, listen, you know, we're just we're just getting into the industrialization business here. Um, the West has really got to step up and, and do a lot more. <clears throat> I think in your piece, you say that sub-Saharan Africa is responsible for about 1% of historic emissions. That, that's right. I mean, these are very poor countries with very low energy use. And, um, you know, historically, they've been responsible for about 1% of, of global emissions. Uh, on an annual basis, they're responsible for about 4% of global emissions. So these are countries that are using very, very little energy. Um, I calculated roughly that the average Ethiopian use 
uses as much energy in a year, electricity in a year, that the average American uses in four days. Wow. So, you wow. know, that's really gives you a sense of the discrepancy. You know, many Africans cannot um, switch on a light bulb at home. Um, you know, almost no one has continuous uh, electricity unless they purchase a diesel generator. Um, so, you know, you're really looking at countries that have a long way to go in terms of developing their energy infrastructure. And so these attempts to, um, to uh, effectively ban uh, the financing of fossil fuels and to... Um, uh, create coalitions of Western countries that are refusing to invest in fossil-based energy in Africa is devastating for African countries where there are lots of poor people without electricity. Because while we do have renewables, there are many things you cannot do with renewables now, and you probably can't for a few more decades. And so to tell Africans, well, you can't have any more fossil-based energy now because we are worried about climate change, I, th I think is immoral and unfair. I mean, you called it sort of green colonialism, but it's actually pretty reminiscent of a, of a kind of embargo or almost like an act of war um, in terms of an energy blockade. I think you could maybe prefer it that way. And, and it's, it's interesting because we're in the midst of, you know, a, a climate crisis, but also an energy crisis right now that has a few factors at play. Certainly COVID's involved, but, you know, the, the financial community has really divested from a lot of fossil fuel development. And that's put a real crunch on on supplies of things like natural gas, which you were mentioning are, are very critical to fertilizer use and are, are being, you know, copiously consumed in the EU because of energy choices they've made to pivot away from nuclear and towards the sort of renewables and gas heavy heavy system. What sort of impacts are you are you anticipating? You know, there was stories of fertilizer plants closing in rich countries like the UK because of, uh, you know, skyrocketing natural gas prices. You know, the, the, the growing season, I guess, is coming up in which that may be a real issue. Like, is that going to further exacerbate these kind of these yields that are one tenth of, of what you'd see in the West? What sort of fears do you have? Yeah, for sure. You know, we're seeing the impacts of very high energy prices in the West. We're seeing um, the negative impacts on, on the business sector, on agriculture, on um, the use of fertilizer and so on in the West. Countries are responding by buying more natural gas. So they are, um, you know, the UK, for example, uh, is buying more natural gas from Norway. Um, the UK uh, has been trying to uh, do a deal with Qatar for um, uh, gas supplies. Uh, you know, the US is investing more in fossils as well, uh, trying to address the high prices of gasoline, for example, um, in, in, the, in the US. So the, the Western countries have the flexibility to invest in natural gas and in other types of fossil fuels in order to address their own energy crisis, in order to make sure people have enough um, heating fuel in the winter or they, they have gasoline at reasonable prices. These are all um, very logical solutions to an energy crisis. The point I'm making in the FP piece is it's hypocritical then to tell poor countries that they cannot do the same. Um, so what we've got now is, you know, uh, if, if, we, if we can say that the world has a limited carbon budget, what we're seeing is that Western countries are liberally taking from that whenever they want, but they're telling poor countries, well, we're not going to finance any fossil fuel projects in your countries because we're worried about climate change. Um, this is hypocritical on so many levels because poor countries, as we mentioned earlier, are responsible for a really, really tiny share of emissions. And, and it's 
it's even worse because they desperately need these energy sources to lift themselves out of poverty and to um, and to grow their economies. So the the um, difference in the way the West is responding to its own energy needs versus the way it's responding to energy energy needs in poor countries, I think, is very hypocritical, and and I think it is a form of colonialism in green. You you really pointed to Norway um, as an example of of this hypocrisy. Can you can you tell me a bit more about that country, its energy policy, and and why it was you know such a focus for you in the piece? So Norway is the most fossil fuel dependent rich country in the world. Um, you know its natural gas and its oil exports are what fuels growth inside Norway. It is, it is what has created an enormous sovereign wealth fund, which is used for all kinds of good things, for, for social transfers, for a, a, a social safety net, to address poverty. Uh, Norway has used oil and gas in its entire uh, sort of history in the modern era. And it continues to expand its exports of natural gas to Europe um, and to other places if, if it can. Um, I find it hypocritical that Norway then signs a pledge at COP26 to um, prevent the financing of fossil fuels in poor countries. I think that's unacceptable given you know, its own history and the fact that it continues to export um, natural gas around the world. Uh, this is the kind of um, uh, sort of uh, hypocrisy that I think is devastating for poor countries. Uh, Norway's um, employment is driven by uh, oil, the oil and gas sector. Its um, social safety nets are driven by uh, the revenues generated from oil and gas. It's still a very large share of its GDP. Um, so I think that I used Norway as an example of um, the fact that we do need these kinds of fuels as we sort of move along the path to industrialization. It's not fair to just sort of cut it off for poor countries. And I see natural gas as sort of a bridge fuel. You know, it's something that um, can serve as a transition away from coal and towards renewables. It burns twice as clean as coal. And Africa sits on 600 cubic trillion feet of natural gas. So as long as it has these sorts of reserves, Nigeria alone has 200 um, uh, of, of that. Um, and so, you know, as long as it has the, these types of reserves, it has every right to exploit these reserves to um, increase energy access for its people. And I think rich countries need to help African countries do that, not try to ban it or block it, um, just because it creates the impression that we're fighting climate change. You know, I think this this largely, this anxiety in the West and this motivation in the West comes out of this fear of, you know, I guess the unwashed heathen and this idea that, you know, if they live like us, we'll need 10 planets and that's just, that's not sustainable. And that that plays in, I think, to... Uh, a long history of of you know Malthusian environmentalism. What what's what's been your experience like that? I, I I gather you know you're you're from southern India. I'm not sure sort of like your own sort of visceral response to those kind of narratives. How how did how do those arguments uh, impact you or how do they affect you? I mean, my visceral response is that this is a form of climate racism. 
you know, that we we can be rich, we can enjoy all the electricity we want, we can go to sports games and have, you know, huge amounts of electricity powering stadiums or what have you. But poor people in poor countries are sort of a threat to our climate change ambitions. Um, I think that is how poor people are being seen, unfortunately, in the environmental movement, or at least parts of it. Um, they're, they're seen as future emitters um, and future polluters. And, you know, we have to stop this right now. Um, and I I don't think, as, as someone from India, as someone who has seen a lot of poverty, um, I think this is completely unfair to say that poor countries must stay poor so that we can achieve our climate goals. I mean, surely there's a better way to do this. And the better way is to be much more reasonable about the fact that poor countries also need to get to high energy status. And they will do that with a mix of renewables. The choices that poor countries have now are much different than what rich countries had when they were industrializing. So I think we need to kind of tone down the hype and think about ways in which poor countries can transition to cleaner forms of energy, all the while understanding that in the immediate term, they probably will need some fossil fuel, including some natural gas. Uh, but, you know, many countries are investing in renewables. There are several countries in sub-Saharan Africa that are majority renewable. Kenya is almost 90% renewable. Um, so it's not as if they're not making those investments, but there are some sectors where they cannot build roads with wind power. They cannot um, you know, uh, produce fertilizer easily with renewables. So these are things where they need the flexibility because their first priority is to lift people out of poverty, and we cannot forget that. There's interesting parallels as well, I think, beyond energy to to things like food security um, and attempts by um, environmental organizations and I think even countries within the EU, for example, to pressure uh, particularly African countries to forego um, biotechnology as a way to solve agricultural problems. And I was, I was speaking with Dr. Chandra Prakash on the, on the program a little while ago, and he was, I think, very motivated to go into um, becoming an agronomist and into biotechnology by um, the famine that was narrowly averted as he was growing up in the 60s uh, by food aid, but really arguing that, you know, through the Green Revolution, India had really achieved its political independence by no longer being dependent on on food aid, by being able to be sovereign and grow its own its own food. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you're seeing a parallel there in terms of just the, the political independence of these countries, whether, you know, I guess colonialism, a big part of that is is trying to maintain colonial control um, over these countries and their resources. And and do you think that the energy policies that are being put forward, that, that there's a bit of a back agenda of that as well to maintain these countries in subservience? I see some parallels between the um, the GMO debate and the uh, the climate debate. Uh, I think there is a sense that um, you know Western countries are imposing their own priorities on poor countries. African countries can benefit enormously from food technology and from seed technology. You know, Africa's dealing with droughts. It's dealing with variability in rainfall. It's dealing with a very um, tough set of soil conditions in some countries. Uh, introducing new types of seed varieties would help enormously. And biotech has a very important role to play in that. So banning um, certain types of food technologies and certain types of seed technologies uh, and, and sort of threatening 
threatening Africa with uh, export uh, uh, sanctions, for example, if they use um, GMOs or if they use biotechnology, um, has been incredibly detrimental. Uh, you know, food production in Africa remains very low and yields remain very low, and Africa did not benefit from the types of green revolution technologies that India and, and Asia and uh, Latin America benefited from in the 60s and 70s. It needs the new technology. It needs another revolution. And it needs to produce more food so that people can move uh, away from farming into cities and industrialize. Uh, that process will be aided by biotech. And I think it's a great pity that uh, we have reached a point where it's almost impossible to talk about um, the role of biotechnology because of the fear of sanctions from European countries. One has to think that at some point we're going to move beyond the ability of, of the EU and, and the West to, to bully these countries into submission on this. Like it's, it's, it's truly astounding just when you step back and think about it that, I mean, it, it makes sense from, I guess, pragmatic economics. This is a huge um, trading block and, and a big import market that they can say, hey, if you grow GMOs in your country, we're going to cut, cut you off as a source of imports. But you know, at some, it's some, it's the 21st century. One would think that we're starting to move beyond. You know, we we had what the 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 colonial era, the post-colonial era. We're still post-post-colonialist, but there's still these colonial relationships that seem to to really endure here. It's do you, do you think that's going to shift with you know the rise of of China and you know maybe more of a multipolar world? I, I hope so. You know, I think. China has a much more pragmatic approach to development, um, and its approach in sub-Saharan Africa has been um, really uh, sort of focused on building Africa's infrastructure. Um, so they have invested a lot in railroads and in roads and in um, uh, more secure buildings and so on. Uh, this is a very good thing, I think, um, for uh, many African countries. And it is a good thing that China is a player in this space because it does have a very different outlook when it comes to um, development priorities uh, in poor countries. I think also India can play a role. India uh, was very vocal at COP. Um, India was very honest about uh, the fact that it relies so heavily on coal and that it's, it's going to be a very difficult process to transition out of coal and that they're not going to commit to some particular date or some particular set of words. Um, they were very clear about that. Um, so I think both China and India can play a very significant role in uh, supporting African countries and also um, really being champions of sort of development priorities rather than what the West thinks Africa should do. An interesting thing that that we witnessed at, at COP, and I think it probably was part of that, um, that announcement that, that, that you were referencing earlier, a coalition of countries coming together to, to sort of ban investment in, in um, fossil infrastructure in, in, I guess, overseas, whatever that means. I'm, I'm guessing that's largely Africa. Um, it, it was a bit rich um, coming from Germany. They were saying, well, we're going we're gonna to assist South Africa, for instance, in transitioning off coal by helping them invest heavily in renewables. And this came at a time when the wind hasn't been blowing very well in Europe. And the number one source of generation on the German grid was coal, 27%. When I was in Germany, you know, there's this electricity map app you can look at and see what the minute to minute sources are. And I'd flick on the lights and have a look. And it was all coal, gas, biomass and that sliver of nuclear that they're that they're about to lose. But, you know, it was um, it, it was really interesting because Germany is a very rich country, you know, building out a huge uh, wind and solar infrastructure. It, it really is a luxury because you need to have a 
parallel um, uh, firm source of electricity that can meet peak demand. You need to basically have two separate grids. And that, that comes at an enormous expense. And, you know, their their commitment to come off coal uh, 2038. I mean, I know there's new talk of coming off in 2030. Talk is cheap. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, they're acknowledging they're going to be relying on gas for a lot longer and even French nuclear. But, you know, this issue of, of electricity access versus reliability, I think, is huge. And you were hinting at that when you were talking about, you know, it, maybe it's reliable if you have a backup generator. Um, so many of the regional grids are tied into the South African grid because it's, um, you know, a more developed country compared to its neighbor. And as that renewable energy creates a, a larger portion of their energy and, and brings more risk of grid instability, um, that has real, real impacts, both in terms of people's everyday lives, but also this project of industrialization that that really requires um, stable, stable electricity. So uh, I'm wondering, you know, Germany obviously was is, is trying to push this agenda, which it's unable to do it at home in terms of a, of a coal phase out. I'm, I'm trying to think about, you know, technologies that are actually going to going to work and, and offer that reliability. And, and it sounds like, you know, fossil fuels um, for, for better or for worse in terms of climate impacts are, are there. Um, do you see a role for, for nuclear in Africa? And if so, who do you who do you think the players are going to be? I think there is a role for nuclear in Africa, Chris. I think it's probably going to be a little bit down the road. You know, I don't see it as being an immediate priority for many countries. I mean, South Africa, as you know, has some uh, nuclear already. Cape Town runs on nuclear largely. Um, but I don't see a lot of new investment planned. Um, I think there is scope for it. And I think these newer generations of nuclear technologies are very promising, um, particularly for smaller countries and smaller markets. Uh, but in the meantime, I think that you know there's going to be a lot of reliance on natural gas. And I don't think that's a bad thing because the uh, even if Africa tripled its natural gas use um, from what it is now, if it makes it three times as much, it'll add another 1% to global emissions. I mean, we're really talking small amounts because they are using so little energy um, as as a as a region. So this is not, you know, uh, this is not anything to be afraid of. I think what we should be far more concerned about is Germany shutting down its eight gigawatts of clean power and spewing, as I understand it, sixty million tons of carbon dioxide per year into the air when this when when its nuclear plants close down. That is far more damaging than anything that Africa is doing in terms of developing its its natural gas or its its fossil fuels. I, I think that's where the, the hypocrisy comes in. You know, um, we are busy approving Nord Stream 2 so that Germany can get more gas, Germany shutting down its nuclear plants. Um, the, the kinds of things that rich countries are doing are going to be far more damaging in terms of total emissions than anything sub-Saharan Africa can do. Um, and even if it in increases its natural gas use, which it does need to do in, in order to industrialize Industrialize. That's going to be a blip compared to what um, the rich countries are doing. Um, you know, as you may know, the U.S. Uh, auctioned off 1.1 billion barrels of crude oil, um, the the rights to it in the Gulf of Mexico last week. Um, and so, you know, countries are doing these kinds of things in the Western world that are going to be hugely emitting in the future compared to anything that poor countries are doing. I think that's where the hypocrisy is. The coalition that you mentioned at COP26, the coalition of countries that signed 
this pledge to, to, to not finance fossil fuels internationally, it sounded like a very grand pledge because it sounded like all international fossil fuel financing would end. But in reality, what it means is that only countries that are reliant on international financing are going to suffer. So the Chinas and Indias of the world it doesn't matter. They'll do whatever they want. Um, it's the poorest countries that need, you know, Western guarantors or Western financing that are going to be affected by this pledge. So I think that's kind of where the hypocrisy is. We are punching down to the poorest countries who are the lowest emitters while doing all kinds of things ourselves that are going to hugely increase our emissions, whether it be Germany or whether it be the U.S. or, you know, other Western countries. So, I mean, you're, you're obviously a very important voice in calling out this hypocrisy and, and I guess kind of being a moral voice um, to the West um, in, in the face of that hypocrisy. Um, are you seeing this message percolating through in terms of civil society in the media? Um, and also, I mean, I'm just I'm trying to think about examples of where the global south can can hold the global north to account and shift that that discourse and dialogue. What, what are you seeing there uh, in, in terms of of that shifting or that hypocrisy being recognized? That's a very, very important question about how the global south can hold um, the north accountable. I, I think there is power in numbers. You know, I think that if uh, countries get together and make a unified uh, plea, it will be very useful. Three African presidents have written op-eds in the Western media saying that this ban on fossil fuel financing will be devastating. It will force them to remain in poverty. Uh, President Museveni of Uganda, President Chakwera of Malawi, President Buhari of Nigeria have all written op-eds about this. Um, the vice president of Nigeria has spoken about it in multiple fora. Um, you know, people like me um, are also talking about it, trying to get uh, an understanding of this set of issues. And I've also been trying to hold a dialogue about this in the Indian media, because I think India is a very critical player in terms of mobilizing um, groups of countries around a more reasonable position and, and in being able to hold the North accountable. I, I think this kind of dialogue and um, the uh, grouping of countries or coming together of countries around this issue or this set of issues will be really important going into the next COP. The next COP is going to be in Africa. So that's, I think, a real opportunity for African countries um, to take a stand and to say, you know, we need the kind of flexibility that you guys are giving yourselves. I think so much is contingent, though, upon um, actually, you know, these these global South countries actually having a strong economic base to, to, to have that independence. I'm thinking back to when oil was 120, 130, $140 a barrel, and you had you know, the brick emerging as a major force. And I mean, that was Brazil, you know, powered by Petrobras. That was, you know, and Venezuela wasn't a part of that. But when, when oil prices were very high, there were certain producers in the global south that were able to punch diplomatically far above their weight. Um, and I think that's, that's for me, a real question is, is in terms of just the real politique of those countries being able to emerge um, and, and carry forward, not just that moral voice, but saying, you know, Hey, we don't necessarily even need you as as guarantors anymore. That's going to require those those countries becoming a lot more wealthy, um, and and having that independence, whether it's because of you know food security and a, some some form of a you know updated green revolution, or whether it's you know from from more energy independence. Yeah, I agree. I think that would be incredibly helpful, and there are I think the larger countries um, in Africa that could play an important role 
in that aspect. So Nigeria, for example, I think can play a very critical role and kind of stand its ground in terms of, you know, what its development priorities are. But you're absolutely right. It is difficult for small countries that are very poor um, to stand up to these sort of larger Western countries that, you know, are so critical in terms of providing financing. Um, and, and Western countries are not only banning financing on their own through bilateral channels, but they're also trying to prevent um, institutions like the World Bank from financing fossil fuel projects. And the World Bank right now has a very narrow window for financing downstream um, natural gas projects. And I don't know how long they'll be able to keep that open. So it is a very challenging task, I think, for the poorer countries that don't have a lot of economic power um, to be able to kind of um, stand up for what they need in terms of development priorities. But I do think that there are some larger countries in the pool um, that can play a, a big role. And I think that they can also, in sub-Saharan Africa, channel um, their relationships with India and China more um, strategically to make the case that, you know, energy is very critical for development. And I mean, to what degree do you think it's worth um, appealing to and trying to win over um, Western environmental NGOs? I mean, these are very powerful organizations. Um, they're getting huge amounts of money from things like the Bezos Climate Fund and, and you know, billionaire donors. Um, the NRDC um, and I think it's Sierra Club have a combined annual operating budget of over $300 million per year. I mean, these are pure campaigning and lobby organizations. How do you engage with um, these these mainstream environmental organizations? Is is it worth your time or, or what's what's your approach there? You know, I have focused my efforts largely on kind of um, building and engaging in a dialogue with uh, governments and with organizations in poor countries. Um, so I have not spent a lot of time engaging with the Western NGOs. I think for from the perspective of Western NGOs, uh, my sense is they are somewhat sympathetic to the hypocrisy argument. You know, that Western countries are engaging in all kinds of fossil fuel um, development. They're making promises about 2030, 2040, 2050. But if you look at what they did the week after COP26, everybody was busy increasing um, their use of fossil fuels and their purchases of fossil fuels. I think that does, that point does sort of um, strike uh, home with the, um, with the Western NGOs. Beyond that, I think it's very difficult to convince Western NGOs about the needs of poor countries. They have very little sort of um, exposure, I think, on the development side. They see poor countries largely as victims of climate change. And, and that's not incorrect. You know, poor countries do suffer greatly from, from floods and from natural disasters and so on brought on by our fossil fuel use. Uh, I think that point has been brought home to the Western NGOs. They're very aware of that. But I do think that they need to also think about poor people, not just as victims, but as people who need to um, lift themselves out of poverty and that that, that is their right uh, to be able to you know have three square meals a day and to be able to hold down a stable job. I think that side of the argument is sort of being subsumed or ignored or not present um, in this very sort of hyped up debate around uh, the impacts of climate change in poor countries. So around COP, for example, you saw a lot of stories in the media about floods in India or about, um, you know, typhoons in uh, uh, Bangladesh or whatever, but you didn't see a lot about energy access. And, and I think that that conversation does need to shift. I think Western NGOs are very unaware of how little energy people have in their daily lives. 
It, this also brings up the question of adaptation, which is which is of such importance. I, I was talking with Ted Nordhaus, uh, I think, in our first interview um, on Decouple, and and he was um, he's probably raised this analogy elsewhere, but he was like, when people think about the climate apocalypse, they often have these kind of Mad Max uh, kind of images in their mind, and he was he was saying that Mad Max is kind of already the reality in these incredibly poor countries with very little energy and and other infrastructure, and and we've seen. Um, mortality related to natural disasters drop, I think, a hundredfold in the in the 20th century. Um, but the places that still experience a lot of of damage um, to human lives, particularly, are, are countries that are just underdeveloped. And so, you know, energy is is required to get you to a place where you have some resiliency. So, in terms of that that victimization, there's there's a need to develop. I mean, you know, I I think I come from. Um, you know, a bit of a naive, privileged uh, environmentalist background. And I've, I've been doing a lot of learning through this podcast and elsewhere. But there's this sort of like visceral thing in me that's like, no, 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 we, like we should we shouldn't be using fossil fuels. They shouldn't be using fossil fuels. We all have to stop. And it's and it's I guess it's, it's just way overly simplistic and not taking into account those relative responsibilities and, and the real need for for me and folks like me to be directing our efforts in our own backyards um, at you know accelerating um, or accelerating a, an energy transition here at home, um, but yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know the 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 impacts of energy poverty and and the ways in which um, you know more energy or this fossil fuel development will aid in in adaptation efforts to reduce climate vulnerability. I mean, that is the uh, sort of counterintuitive uh, point, right? That more energy investments will actually help you address climate change. Um, and some of those energy investments are going to have to be in fossil fuels uh, if you want to be more resilient or if you want to adapt to climate change. I think one really good example is roads. So uh, across Africa, the roads are in terrible shape. They're often unpassable and any kind of, uh, any kind of event, natural disaster or, or even heavy rains make roads unpassable. Um, that puts people at great risk. If you're trying to get to a clinic or you're trying to get to school, you, you know, you can't do your, um, your, your, you can't go about your day. And often it, it, people lose their lives because they're not able to get to a particular place. I mean, so to invest in roads to make countries more resilient, you're going to have to use fossil fuels. Um, I think this is sort of the counterintuitive um, kind of example that people do need to get their heads around, that to reduce mortality and to make countries more resilient, you're going to have to invest in energy. Some part of that is going to have to be fossil fuels. Um, same is true of buildings, right? If you want buildings that can withstand hurricanes or withstand climate events, you're going to have to invest in energy to build buildings. Um, they require all kinds of energy intensive inputs, including steel um, and cement. Uh, these are things that are energy intensive, hard to abate. Um, they are uh, sectors that require quite a lot of fossil fuels all over the world. But if you don't want buildings to collapse in a climate emergency, you're going to have to invest in, in cement and steel and build uh, better buildings. Um, if you want hospitals to have electricity all the time, we know that renewables are intermittent, you know, that they're not a, cons a constant or continuous source of energy. You're going to have to have some sort of fossil fuel backup if you want hospitals to run during or after climate disasters to, to treat people. So I think that that's where the conversation becomes more complex. It becomes kind of more reasonable than 
and saying, oh no, Bangladesh has terrible climate disasters, so they shouldn't produce any energy that's fossil fuel related. That makes no sense. Um, you know, if we want Bangladesh to adapt to climate change or become more resilient to climate change, it's going to have to use energy from a variety of sources, some of which will be fossil fuels, at least for some time. Until we come up with technologies where we can use renewables to make um, cement and steel and build roads, we're, we're not there. We're not there in any country. There's no country in the world that's renewables only. Um, you know, Iceland is renewables only for its electricity, but it burns coal for its industry. Um, and it's also a very rich country where all the infrastructure has been built. So I think we need to be kind of more reasonable about poor countries and try to understand, you know, how, how significant their energy needs are. I mean, I, th I think we're far too charitable um, and we use inaccurate language like the word renewables. Like Iceland is, is geothermal and hydro which, hydro, which are very different than than wind and solar. And I, I understand even the World Bank um, is limiting hydro development in Africa as well, large hydro dams. But, you know, in terms of, of how charitable we are in the discourse, you know, what I've been reminding myself is this is a 300 billion plus a, a per year industry. They have strong interests. They have strong marketing. There's a taboo to say anything bad about wind and solar, but the process that um, the Cal that California is under in terms of installing a lot of renewables, shutting down nuclear, um, making themselves very dependent on electricity imports, uh, you know, as, as they build particularly wind and solar, um, th also this need to install a lot of backup generation. Um, and so most of the big Silicon Valley companies have diesel generators on site. I think there was a order from Governor Newsom that they had to run, you know, these these cogeneration facilities nonstop um, during times of flex alerts. And and I started calling this the Nigerification of of the Californian grid because, um, you know, a friend of mine was talking to me a little bit about Nigeria and saying that, you know, there's this issue of access, but also reliability. And and in Nigeria, there's uh, really big problems with reliability and, and defection from the grid. And, and I think something like two or three times the installed capacity of the grid in diesel generators that people use just to have that reliability. Companies have it so they can remain economic and not interrupt their their processes. So, you know, to me, I think I think we're we're tr we're kind of kissing the ring too much, particularly of wind and solar. You know, this idea that they'll ever pave roads or make steel or these other things is, is you know, it's something that, you know, with steel, for instance, that can maybe be produced on a, on a demonstration level, but that realistically is is never going to happen on the scale we're talking about to industrialize Africa. You know, what are what are your thoughts there? I mean, this this Nigerification of California, the idea that then Nigeria or these other countries should embark even further on something that a, a very, you know, only the wealthiest places in the world have been able to do and to do at the expense of, you know, enormous increases in, in um, you know, grid insta un instability and, and blackout events. I fully agree. I mean, th there's no... There's no case here um, to be renewables only and end up with you know huge intermittency problems and 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 debt problems as you try to buy power. There there are um, anecdotally I've heard stories about uh, uh, in Kenya about this reliance on wind power and then the intermittency problem kicks in. They're forced to purchase power. They end up you know with a lot of debt. Um, that is a scenario that could easily replicate across Africa if countries try to um, follow a wind and solar only. It, it is not viable at this 
this time. And it probably will not be viable for a very long time. And, and I think the more we can make that point, the better. Um, you know, African countries do not have the luxury to build lots of excess capacity or to build backups um, in a hurry that will supply power in a very expensive manner. Diesel power, for example, in Nigeria is right now three or four times the cost of, of the public grid. That's not viable for anybody other than the largest businesses or the richest households. So we really do need to invest in kind of basic large-scale energy. You, you brought up the issue of scale. I think that's a really, really important point. If we want large-scale, cheap energy, we're going to have to rely on a very wide range of energy sources, including some fossils. And I think for sub-Saharan Africa in particular, the importance of natural gas cannot be understated. I mean, they are sitting on a lot of reserves of natural gas, and they can use this 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 particular source of energy, I think in a very effective way across a wide range of uses. So to prevent them from doing that, um, just because we like wind and solar is completely unconscionable. And as you mentioned, extremely expensive. It's not something that's viable for poor countries. It might not even be viable for California in the end, you know, let alone for Nigeria or for Guinea-Bissau or for Benin. I mean, this is just not um, in the in the range of the of the reasonable. Uh, I think there, there's no question that we don't have the technology right now to go renewable only, um, and only a few countries have geothermal, for example, in Africa. So it really we are talking about um, the need to use uh, all types of fossil fuels at least for the next several decades. There was a, a campaign I remember reading about called, uh, it, was, it was around solar panels for huts. That was the name of it. And, and someone who had a similar analysis, I think, to yourself around eco-colonialism said, and huts forever. I saw that too. Someone said it on Twitter. I thought that was brilliant because that really does sum up exactly what this sort of mentality is. You know, you stay small and you stay poor and one solar panel on your hut is plenty. Um, there is no sense of, I think people have a hard time sort of conceiving of Africans living the same kinds of lifestyles that we lead. You know, having one or two cars, having a home, having uh, a job in a city. I mean, these are things that everybody aspires to across uh, many countries around the world. And why should they not? You know, we, we it's not it's it's completely immoral and unfair to say you stay in your hut with your solar panel, and I will go to um, you know a, a football game whenever I want in a stadium that's lit with, uh, you know. Who knows how much electricity? So, uh, I think that is the that is sort of the, the the hypocrisy of the current conversation. I guess just in closing, um, you know what what gives you hope in terms of speaking with some of your colleagues in sub-Saharan Africa, um, and, and looking at that region um, in, in terms of the next you know years and decades ahead. There is a very robust conversation emerging in sub-Saharan Africa on what its energy needs are and how these energy needs should be achieved. I think across different countries in sub-Saharan Africa, there is now a, a sort of a large group of very, very qualified people who are leading the conversation on what sorts of energy investments need to be made. That, I think, is extremely hopeful. Um, and that that will really serve to elevate the conversation, to bring it to a different place, to move away from this sort of colonialism and green to a development-focused effort that also acknowledges climate change and also, you know, is interested in investing in, in renewables, but in a very um, kind of uh, logical and reasonable manner rather than 
immediate bans or, or pledges or what have you. So that that gives me a lot of hope. I also think across African governments, um, there is a, a, there are sort of unified voices emerging around this issue. People are are beginning to speak out um, about Africa's energy needs. And finally, I think that the larger uh, middle-income economies outside of Africa are helping with this effort. Um, so I think that if, you know countries like India and China, but also other emerging economies can play a role in terms of coming to these public fora and saying, look, you know, these are countries that are yet to develop. They have very different needs than Iceland or Germany or, or you know, the UK. Okay, Vijaya, thank you so much for making the time. It's a real honor having you on Decouple. Um, I hope to have you back at some point. Thanks so much, Chris. It was a pleasure to be here. All right. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.